Chapter 5, Part 2 of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Roger Turneau. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 5, Part 2. Bahia Blanca. During my stay at Bahia Blanca, while waiting for the Beagle, the place was in a constant state of excitement, from rumors of wars and victories between the troops of Rosas and the wild Indians. One day an account came that a small party forming one of the postas on the line to Buenos Aires had been found all murdered. The next day three hundred men arrived from the Colorado under the command of Commandant Miranda. A large portion of these men were Indians, mansos or tame, belonging to the tribe of the Cacique Bernantio. They passed the night here, and it was impossible to conceive anything more wild and savage than the scene of their bivouac. Some drank till they were intoxicated. Others swallowed the steaming blood of the cattle slaughtered for their suppers, and then, being sick from drunkenness, they cast it up again, and were besmeared with filth and gore. Nam sumul expletus dapibus vinoque sepultus, servisem inflexum posuit, jacuitque per antrum, Immensus sanium eructans, ac frusta cruenta, per somum comixta mero. In the morning they started for the scene of the murder, with orders to follow the rastros, or track, even if it led them to Chile. We subsequently heard that the wild Indians had escaped into the great Pampas, and from some cause the track had been missed. One glance at the rastro tells these people a whole history. Supposing they examine the track of a thousand horses, they will soon guess the number of mounted ones by seeing how many have cantered. By the depth of the other impressions, whether any horses were loaded with cargoes. By the irregularity of the footsteps, how far tired. By the manner in which the food has been cooked, whether the pursued traveled in haste. By the general appearance, how long it has been since they passed. They consider a rastro of ten days or a fortnight quite recent enough to be hunted out. We also heard that Miranda struck from the west end of the Sierra Ventana, in a direct line to the island of Cholechel, situated seventy leagues up the Rio Negro. This is a distance of between two and three hundred miles, through a country completely unknown. What other troops in the world are so independent? With the sun for their guide, mare's flesh for food, their saddle-cloths for beds, as long as there is a little water, these men would penetrate to the end of the world. A few days afterwards I saw another troop of these banditti-like soldiers start on an expedition against a tribe of Indians at the small Salinas, who had been betrayed by a prisoner cacique. The Spaniard who had brought the orders for this expedition was a very intelligent man. He gave me an account of the last engagement at which he was present. Some Indians, who had been taken prisoners, gave information of a tribe living north of the Colorado. Two hundred soldiers were sent, and they first discovered the Indians by a cloud of dust from their horses' feet as they chanced to be traveling. The country was mountainous and wild, and it must have been far in the interior, for the Cordillera were in sight. 
The Indians, men, women, and children, were about one hundred and ten in number, and they were nearly all taken or killed, for the soldiers saber every man. The Indians are now so terrified that they offered no resistance in a body, but each flies, neglecting even his wife and children. But when overtaken, like wild animals, they fight against any number to the last moment. One dying Indian seized with his teeth the thumb of his adversary, and allowed his own eye to be forced out sooner than relinquish his hold. Another, who was wounded, feigned death, keeping a knife ready to strike one more fatal blow. My informer said, when he was pursuing an Indian, the man cried out for mercy, at the same time that he was covertly loosing the bolus from his waist, meaning to whirl it round his head and so strike his pursuer. Quote, I, however, struck him with my saber to the ground, and then got off my horse and cut his throat with my knife. Unquote. This is a dark picture. But how much more shocking is the unquestionable fact that all the women who appear above twenty years old are massacred in cold blood? When I exclaimed that this appeared rather inhuman, he answered, quote, Why, what can be done? They breed so. Unquote. Everyone here is fully convinced that this is the most just war because it is against barbarians. Who would believe in this age that such atrocities could be committed in a Christian civilized country? The children of the Indians are saved, to be sold or given away as servants, or rather slaves for as long a time as the owners can make them believe themselves slaves. But I believe in their treatment there is little to complain of. In the battle four men ran away together. They were pursued. One was killed, and the other three were taken alive. They turned out to be messengers or ambassadors from a large body of Indians, united in the common cause of defense near the Cordillera. The tribe to which they had been sent was on the point of holding a grand council. The feast of mare's flesh was ready, and the dance prepared. In the morning the ambassadors were to have returned to the Cordillera, they were remarkably fine men, very fair, above six feet high, and all under thirty years of age. The three survivors, of course, possessed very valuable information, and to extort this they were placed in a line. The two first being questioned answered, No se, I do not know, and were one after the other shot. The third also said, No se, adding, quote, Fire. I am a man, and can die. Not one syllable would they breathe to injure the united cause of their country. The conduct of the above-mentioned cacique was very different. He saved his life by betraying the intended plan of warfare, and the point of union in the Andes. It was believed that they were already six or seven hundred Indians together, and that in summer their numbers would be doubled. Ambassadors were to have been sent to the Indians at the small Salinas, near Baya Blanca, whom I have mentioned that the same cacique had betrayed. The communication, therefore, between the Indians extends from the Cordillera to the coast of the Atlantic. 
General Rosas's plan is to kill all stragglers, and having driven the remainder to a common point, to attack them in a body in the summer with the assistance of the Chilenos. This operation is to be repeated for three successive years. I imagine the summer is chosen as the time for the main attack because the plains are then without water, and the Indians can only travel in particular directions. The escape of the Indians to the south of the Rio Negro, where in such a vast unknown country they would be safe, is prevented by a treaty with the Tehuelches to this effect, that Rosas pays them so much to slaughter every Indian who passes to the south of the river. But if they fail in so doing, they themselves are to be exterminated. The war is waged chiefly against the Indians near the Cordillera, for many of the tribes on this eastern side are fighting with Rosas. The general, however, like Lord Chesterfield, thinking that his friends may in a future day become his enemies, always places them in the front ranks, so that their numbers may be thinned. Since leaving South America, we have heard that this war of extermination completely failed. Among the captive girls taken in the same engagement, there were two very pretty Spanish ones, who had been carried away by the Indians when young, and could now only speak the Indian tongue. From their account, they must have come from Salta, a distance in a straight line of nearly one thousand miles. This gives one a grand idea of the immense territory over which the Indians roam. Yet, great as it is, I think there will not, in another half-century, be a wild Indian northward of the Rio Negro. The warfare is too bloody to last, the Christians killing every Indian, and the Indians doing the same by the Christians. It is melancholy to trace how the Indians have given way before the Spanish invaders. Sherdel says that in 1535, when Buenos Aires was founded, there were villages containing two and three thousand inhabitants. Even in Falconer's time, 1750, the Indians made inroads as far as Luxan, Areco, and Arrecife, but now they are driven beyond the Salado. Not only have whole tribes been exterminated, but the remaining Indians have become more barbarous. Instead of living in large villages and being employed in the arts of fishing, as well as of the chase, they now wander about the open plains without home or fixed occupation. I heard also some account of an engagement which took place a few weeks previously to the one mentioned at Cholechel. This is a very important station on account of being a pass for horses, and it was, in consequence, for some time the headquarters of a division of the army. When the troops first arrived there, they found a tribe of Indians, of whom they killed twenty or thirty. The cacique escaped in a manner which astonished everyone. The chief Indians always have one or two picked horses, which they keep ready for any urgent occasion. On one of these, an old white horse, the cacique sprung, taking with him his little son. The horse had neither saddle nor bridle. To avoid the shots, the Indian rode in the peculiar method of his nation, namely with an arm round the horse's neck and one leg only on its back. Thus hanging on one side, he was seen patting the horse's head and talking to him. The pursuers urged every effort in the chase. The commandant three times changed his horse, but all in vain. 
the old Indian father and his son escaped and were free. What a fine picture one can form in one's mind, the naked, bronze-like figure of the old man with his little boy, riding like a mazepa on a white horse, thus leaving far behind him the host of his pursuers. I saw one day a soldier striking fire with a piece of flint, which I immediately recognized as having been part of the head of an arrow. He told me it was found near the island of Cholichel, and that they are frequently picked up there. It was between two and three inches long, and therefore twice as large as those now used in Tierra del Fuego. It was made of an opaque cream-colored flint, but the point and barbs had been intentionally broken off. It is well known that no pompous Indians now use bows and arrows. I believe a small tribe in Banda Oriental must be accepted, but they are widely separated from the pompous Indians, and border close on those tribes that inhabit the forest and live on foot. It appears, therefore, that these arrowheads are antiquarian relics of the Indians, before the great change in habits consequent on the introduction of the horse into South America. And in a footnote here, Azara has even doubted whether the pompous Indians ever used bows, and it's followed by a note from the editor. Several similar agate arrowheads have since been dug up at Chupat, and two were given to me on the occasion of my first visit there by the governor. R. T. Pritchett, 1880 End of Chapter 5 Part 2 Recording by Roger Turnell